Um, I'm Danielle Reeves. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming tonight. And I have the privilege of introducing Betsy Nesbitt Spinotto. I'm going to read you a little bit of her bio, and then I'm going to tell you my own commentary. <laughs> Dr. Elizabeth Betsy Nesbitt Spinotto has, been, has spent over 10 years as a researcher, consultant, speaker, writer, counselor, and educator. She received her PhD in counselor education and supervision from the University of Arkansas, her MA in community counseling from Denver Seminary, and her BA in interpersonal communication from the University of Northern Iowa. Betsy has co-authored a book with Dr. Craig Blomberg titled Effective Generational Ministry, and another with Drs. Heather and Fred Gingrich titled Skills for Effective Counseling. Betsy lives in Littleton, where she also had a counseling practice and serves as Associate Professor of Counseling at Denver Seminary. What I would like to tell you about Betsy is she is one of our elders here at Waterstone. She has been here for how many years at Waterstone? Almost, almost came in 2011. So almost seven. Almost June, seven. Okay, almost seven years. Uh, she has had an incredible impact on a lot of people here at Waterstone. She's been. She was an active part of our 20s, 30s group, and really helped form that group and that community, and has become a dear friend. So it is with great pleasure I introduce Betsy Spinotto. Thank you. So I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with you today, and I'm also a little nervous about it because this is a rather vulnerable topic um, and the nature of it asks me as the presenter to be vulnerable to you um, and it also asks you to at least consider what that vulnerability might look like in your own life. Um, to give you a little bit of background, this, this idea of authenticity with self, God, and others is something that is obviously comes out of my own story and has been really important um, to me and when I, whether it's in my counseling practice, it's in how I train other clinicians, that's my primary job is that I teach counseling at Denver Seminary. Um, because I, as much as I love academia and I love learning and I love equipping people, I deeply believe that who we are is the biggest tool, influence, game changer in, in the way we interact with others. And if we're not willing to do the work ourselves, then no, it doesn't matter what we learn and it doesn't matter what kind of tools we add to our toolbox if we're not clean on who we are and who God's made us to be and what that calling looks like, what that responsibility looks like. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's on? Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so some some background. I love personality tests. They make me feel safe and warm to put me in a box. Like it's just a cozy little place to be. I know some of you hate them because you're like, don't box me in. But that's just so nice little safety for me. Um, but one of those. So I'm, I'm constantly doing different personality tests or trying different things. I'm studying the Enneagram right now, and um, that's just that language is kind of floating around in my head. Um, but one of the things that's really core to who I am, regardless of what assessment you want to run it through, um, is that I really like to look like I have everything together. Um, I want to convince myself of that. I want to convince you of that. Um, there is a lot of, it, it's, it's not really a direct people-pleasing piece, because I don't really don't care if you like me. It, it's more of an image maintenance piece that I want to be okay with me. Um, and so I'm, I'm pretty good at it, 
honestly. Like, I'm, I'm good at looking like I'm good. Like, I want to be the good girl kind of thing. Uh, I spent a lot of time in therapy around that one. Um, <laughs> but when I was, when I was in seminary, um, God just smacked me down with a whole bunch of health problems. And one of the things I've learned in my life is that my health is usually the way God gets my attention, whether it was chronic migraines, whether it was um, mono for my entire sophomore year of high school, um, whether it was an autoimmune disorder that kicked in nine months into starting seminary. Um, there's just been a lot of things where God physically has to knock me out to get my attention. Um, and when I was in seminary, when I had this, this major health things come up, I ended up having two surgeries in a matter of three months and just I went through some medical treatment that um, wasn't for cancer but it was a cancer drug cancer treatment drug so it just wreaked havoc on me Um, all the while doing a two-year intensive program and it just stripped me Um, and you I'm sure many of you have gotten to points in life where you just don't have the ability to image maintain anymore because you're so exhausted and I was really blessed with this community at the church I was attending in seminary that we're very open about, we just want you to show up. Even if you're a mess, even if you've got nothing constructive to contribute, just show up. And I remember walking into this group one time, we would meet every Thursday, I think, for dinner at our leader's house, and then we do, um, we're going through books of the Bible, Bible study. And I remember that was the one thing in the midst of battling some depression, really having some struggles physically, that I was like, I gotta go to class, and I gotta go to group. And anything else became optional, but those were my two kind of requirements. So I walked in one day to this group, and I was in like scrubs and a tie-dye t-shirt, and my hair was thrown up, but I had no makeup on, and I walked in and I went, y'all just better be glad I'm here, because it's the best I could do today. (laughs) That was it. And what God did through that, without year, year and a half, was strip me down so bare that I had to learn what this looked like, what it meant to be honest with myself about who I was, what was happening, how I felt about it, how that affected my relationship with God, how I saw him, how I presented myself to him, and then how I also interacted with other people. Um, And this has been a continual growth process and learning process. Um, And as we get into this, I may end up sharing more. I really honestly don't know what I'm going to share and what I'm not going to share. And that was part of I didn't want to script out a talk on authenticity to you. <laughs> I wanted some, some broad bullet pieces that I know we, I want us to talk about, but I also wanted to be able to interact with you in real time out of real relationship, as weird as this relationship is, um, but as part of community together and kind of see where that takes us. Um, one of the things that I have learned in this process is that I'm a very open person in general. If you have the guts to ask a question, I will have the guts to answer a question. So be careful what you ask. (laughs) Because if you don't want vulnerability to come back to you, don't ask the questions. (laughs) Because I will be honest with you, (laughs) as you found out when you walked in this this evening. Um, So I forgot my clicker, so we're just going to do this the awkward way here. I want to, how many of you are familiar with Brene Brown? Okay, some of you. So she's a social worker who does a lot of research on shame um, and some other psychological constructs, and she's a fantastic speaker. So it's not just this nerdy researcher. Like, she's fun to listen to. 
Um, but she, this, I'm going to show, it's about a five minute clip, just under five minutes of, she's having a conversation with Oprah and um, they're going to kind of set the stage a little bit for some of what we're going to talk about today. of imperfection you talk about being a wholehearted person now my definition of spirituality is living an open-hearted life so open-hearted wholehearted what does it mean to be a wholehearted person you have actually you know um, a list of ten different qualities that wholehearted people have in common and so cultivating authenticity letting go of what people think that's the first one let's talk about that it's so hard I thought doing this research I thought going into it, there were authentic people and inauthentic people. Mm -hmm. I had, I did not find any evidence of that at all. What I found is authenticity is a practice, and you choose it every day, sometimes every hour of every day. And it's a practice. It's not, I just wake up and hey, I'm authentic. It's that when you walk into a meeting, you have to make the choice. Am I going to show up and let myself be seen? Am I going to, if I can raise my hand and say, Wow, y'all look super excited. I don't know what in the hell you're talking about. I'm so lost. <laughs> you know, that's a choice. Yes. Uh huh. Right. Mm -hmm. And when to and to be make that authentic choice, you gotta let go of 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 of, of the fake fake I said. Yeah. I call it the fake But you know what? I have found. I mean, I, I consider myself to be an authentic person. But when I am inauthentic is when I've allowed myself to be around people who were not, and then I have to fake it to be with them. Oh, for sure. It's contagious. Yes. So they're faking it. Yeah. And then, and you know you're in that situation when you do that, huh, that kind of, huh, you're laughing at jokes that aren't funny. You're pretending to be comfortable when you're not and lose your own authenticity. Yeah, and I do it. So letting go of what people think. Okay, cultivating self-compassion, letting go of perfectionism because there is no such thing. No, and I would, this was, you know, first of all, you know that this is what led these 10 guideposts that emerged from the research is yes. what led to the breakdown. Yes. Like this did not make me happy. Because you were like two out of the 10? I was two out of the 10 and it was, I was cheating. <laughs> and you're writing the book. Right. And so I was like, so I had to put the data away. I didn't write the book until I was in therapy for a year and a half. Wow. And I went to a therapist with an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> said, here are the things that I need more of. I've got six weeks. Go. <laughs> Fix me. Fix me. Fix she me. She said, mm. Mm. yeah, but no, so, Here's what I learned about Oh, I love that you went to a therapist that sees therapists. Yeah. And that you started out by saying, look, I just want to be fixed. I don't want to talk about that mother stuff and all that. No, no, the, the no childhood BS. No childhood BS. Uh -huh. Let's just get to it. Tips and techniques, baby. Bullet points. <laughs> Bullet points. <laughs> Save me. Tell me what to do. Yeah, no. Wow. wow. So perfectionism, what emerged for me in the data was that perfectionism is not about striving for excellence or healthy striving, which... Yeah. I'm four. Yeah. It's a cognitive behavioral process, a way of thinking and feeling that says this. If I look perfect, do it perfect, work perfect, and live perfect, I can avoid or minimize shame, blame, and judgment. You know what I thought when I was reading this? I had another aha. Aha. Ah. Two people. <laughs> this was my other aha. That perfectionism. I never gotten this before until I read this. That Perfectionism is the ultimate fear that the people who are walking around as perfectionists who have to have everything so, yeah, yeah 
that they are ultimately afraid that the world is going to see them for who they really are and they won't measure up. There's no question. That's that's what it that's is for correct, me, right? That's exactly okay. what it is. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's fear. Because it's, it's very different than trying to be excellent yeah, and working yeah. hard and doing your best. Yeah. Yeah, and so I call perfectionism the 2010 shield. We carry it around thinking it's going to protect us from being hurt. Yeah. But it protects us from being seen. Yeah, it's interesting because I know people who are, and I actually think, you know, kind of sad because you, you, you're, you're striving for a world that doesn't exist. Yeah. And I can see right through it. God, I, it's so slippery. I'm like a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> really? It's like one day at a time. Yeah, because like if I'm feeling... How did it show up for you? Academically, in my work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, like if we're... If we've missed church for a couple of Sundays, my kids are going in starched outfits on that Sunday. The uh -huh. next Sunday, like, you know, just, you know, just be beyond judgment, which there's no such thing. Yeah. So before we dive in any further, what stands out to you in that video? What do you hear? Immobilization. Immobilization from taking on the perfectionism or being a less authentic self. Okay. Yeah. I like to remind about uh, we think that perfectionism is like a shield that protects us, but mm -hmm. it actually protects us from being seen. Yes. Yes. And I think there is something in how God made us that we desire to be seen. I mean, the fall is when we started to cover and hide but we were made to be seen. And we were made to be in intimate, vulnerable connection with one another. And that, that may get tainted by the fall, but that doesn't go away. And how we go about it has been tainted. And what gets in our way is part of the fall. But there is a deep part of our humanness that longs to be seen. And that is authenticity is this, this pursuit of being seen as who we are. Um, my, when my, when my grandfather passed away, um, about that time, my mom and I, and I don't remember who else was involved in that conversation, whether my sisters were there or not. Um, my grandfather loved the Lord passionately. Um, he, when on his, on his good days, he was warm, he was caring, he was affectionate. And on his bad days, he was moody and destructive and mean. And he'd lived through World War II in Denmark, in occupied territory. Um, his father had been part of the Danish underground, helping uh, Jews escape to Sweden. And my grandfather remembers Nazi flashlights going through his house, looking for his dad. Um, in a matter of five years, his father committed suicide. His best friend died in a plane crash. They were pilots. Um, and his first baby died. And then they immigrated to the US. And he had no, he had no care in that process. There was no, there, in a conservative Christian community, there wasn't counseling for that. There wasn't pastoral care for that. Um, and he did the best he could for the next 40 years. But he did, honestly, there's still a lot of brokenness there. And so when he was dying, as a family, we were talking about how do we remember him? What do we choose to remember him by? And what we landed on is that it is actually far more loving to remember the whole of who he was than it is to only remember the good. Because the good has all the more power and all the more impressiveness when you see the whole picture of what he had to live through. 
And authenticity is this piece of, I want you to see the whole of me. I'm terrified because I don't want to be rejected and I don't want to be judged and I don't want to be shamed. But I want to get back to that core desire and that core need to be in connection with another human, being fully seen and welcomed and loved in spite of, because of, in light of all of those things. Any other thoughts? So from this, I like what Brene said about authenticity being a practice. Um, This is a choice, and this is a habit that we have to cultivate. Um, We don't just magically become this, um, because by our nature, we will hide. We will try to self-protect. We will try to self-promote. And each of us have a tendency to do one or the other of those things, either self-protect or self-promote. But both are out of a fear of actually being seen. And so we have to choose to do different. Um, And this, I think, scripturally, we have a lot of support, whether it's as simple as taking thoughts captive um, or choosing to think on what is true and right and good and pure. Those are, there's, there's a scriptural foundation that says cognitive behavioral interventions are a good thing. And if we wait for just our feelings to catch up, we're going to be dragging behind. Our feelings matter. And there's a difference between being inauthentic in terms of like, I'm going to pretend to be someone I'm not versus I'm going to practice to become someone I'm not yet. So it's one thing if I stand up and I say, this is who I am, and it's a facade to you that I'm presenting to you. It's another thing to say, I am not a patient person, but I'm going to practice that right now. I'm not being inauthentic in that. I am practicing to become someone I'm not yet. Okay? Um, so authenticity is this being honest about who we really or truly are. It's our genuine, real self, maskless, honest, not counterfeited or copied. Because um, I think there's a buzzword in authenticity in our culture right now where it gets thrown around everywhere. And so, like, what does this actually mean? And it means that you are who you are <laughs> on its simplest level. And you're not trying to be someone you are not. Again, that's different than not trying to practice to become. Because we have a responsibility to grow in that sense. But I'm not going to present myself as someone I'm not. Okay? Yes, yeah. I, I just wanted to say that in trying to accomplish all those things. Uh It it seems like uh, at its uh, very um, basic foundation, one has to be comfortable with With who they actually are. Right off the bat. Uh I don't know. I I, I think you have to grow in becoming that. That is a process. But yeah, and that's why we're going to start with authenticity with self. Because you have to start with, can I be real with myself about who I am? Can I be honest before myself about who I am? Yeah, because to not have that, all of these things become such a huge challenge. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, and that's where I've, I've wrestled over the years of what's the order in which we present these things because the reality is we need to hit all three domains of authenticity with self, God, and others simultaneously because they inform one another. But as linear humans, I got to start with authenticity with self. Just because, because otherwise, what am I bringing before God? What am I bringing before other people? It's not a perfected authenticity with self. It's that with where I stand right now, what can I be honest about? 
and can I grow in that as I move forward? Because as I enter, and we'll talk about this throughout tonight, like as I grow in my authenticity with self, it, it increases my ability to be honest before God which incre and increases my ability to be honest before other people, which opens me up to more honest feedback from others and from God that shapes then how I see self. And we keep this circular interconnected pattern going. Okay. So we have barriers for authentic to authenticity. Um, if anyone's ever read Brendan Manning, he has a book called Abba's Child where he talks about the imposter. Um, and for whatever reason, this was like, I, I have done this talk before, or I talked like this before, and I've never circled back to that book, but this time as I was prepping for this, like I just kept coming back to that book. So if you want something to follow up with, that would be where, where my brain's at, so hopefully that's helpful for you too. Um, I don't know if there's a newer edition, but this is what mine looks like. Um, and Brennan writes in a rather stream of consciousness kind of flow, so if you want linear point by point, he's not your guy. Um, but he, he's having a conversation on page with you. Um, and so he talks about the imposter. And the, the imposter is the parts of ourself that self-protect, self-promote, and is rooted in, <coughs> excuse me, fear of shame, blame, and judgment. Okay? Um, so one of the things, well, I'll back up. So I think each of us can relate to different parts of this. For some of us, I don't tend to be a self-protector, except that I use self-promotion to self-protect, right? And others of you don't tend to be a self-promoter. Your, your imposter is actually that you, you make yourself less than, rather than make yourself more than, right? Um, and for some, you don't necessarily relate to that, but you, you get the fear piece, right? So for each of us, there's going to be parts that we go, oh, that's what my imposter looks like. He has these characteristics or she has those characteristics. Okay. So think about that as we keep going tonight of just what, what it, who is your imposter? What, what are their characteristics? How do they show up? Where, how do you recognize them? Okay. So Manning says, the imposter often sounds like a cross between William Faulkner and the Marx Brothers. His unctus pronouncements and pontifications are a profusion of half-truths. Because he is the master of disguise, he can easily slip into feigned humility, the attentive listener, the witty reconter, the intellectual heavy, or the urbane inhabitant of the global village. The false self is skilled at the controlled openness um, and, sorry, and scrupulously avoids any significant self-disclosure. So that's a rather packed definition. Um, does anything stand out to you in that? Controlled yeah. openness. Uh-huh. Controlled openness. Because inauthenticity is not just that nobody knows you and nobody reads you. It's that you have been very selective about who gets what. And it's not out of this person only gets this much because they've only proven that much safety, and that's a wisdom and a discernment. It's a I want to image control in these ways. <laughs> Very possibly, yes. <laughs> uh -huh. okay. Yes, ma'am. Why is it important to be authentic? I mean, why do we? Good question. Why? Why do I need to be authentic? Mm -hmm. Does anybody else want to take a stab at that? Why are you here? Why did you want to know about this? 
Why is it important? Well, I, I think in the purest sense, if one can be authentic, uh, it, it, it just frees you. Mm -hmm. you. You really can just go about your business and not fear judgment, mm -hmm. not fear uh, anybody really penetrating anything. First of all, you don't need the shroud. Right. But if you had it, you know. There's no fear in someone cutting behind that curtain. Yeah. yeah. So there is a freedom. Yes. I think it really sells God short for denying who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. The... The first thing that comes to mind is perfect love casts out fear. That authenticity is the ability to actually be loved um, and, and more fully loved, whether it starts with God or starts with other people around us. Um, and in that it is, as you're saying, there, there, there's a freedom that comes with living authentically, but there is also a lack of fear then. Um, that I don't, the more I step into this authentic identity, the less I fear what you're going to think of me, the less I fear whether uh, how I say or do something is going to change how you see me. That doesn't mean that I'm not attentive to and concerned with what feedback may look like because that's data in terms of, well, maybe I didn't know that part of myself and you're giving me feedback that I thought I was being kind and it wasn't kind. And that, that's, it matters in terms of, oh, I get to keep learning. But it doesn't matter in terms of my sense of self is in jeopardy with every interaction I have with other people. That sense of self, when we're authentic, is grounded and secure, growing, changing, evolving, but unthreatenable. Yes. From you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I think we'll we'll talk in each one of these sections. We're going to talk about like what does scripture say about each of these types of authenticities, and it'll speak to your question piece by piece as well. So, okay. So, like I mentioned, we're going to start with this idea of what does it mean to be authentic with self. Um, Mainly because, well, selfishly, that's where I needed to start. So if you need to start somewhere else, more power to you, but that's where I needed to start, okay? <laughs> so, um, so I think we could pull various different scriptures, but I, the, the one that came to mind and stood out to me is Romans 12, where <clears throat> Paul is speaking and says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For, each, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is in giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. With this, I think as, as, a, as a writer, as a speaker, as a human, we present information based off of our own stories. And I think Paul's issue was to be of sober judgment and to not think of himself more highly than he ought. 
but the flip side is also true of not to think of yourself lesser than you are, right? Um, and I, uh, I helped write a curriculum for churches, and now it works with um, it does some, the, the people who have run with it also do some individual mentoring around it too. But in that, we talk about gift envy versus um, gift pr projection. So this, that we, either in gift projection, I think you should be like me, so why don't you have this gift because I have this gift? And in gift envy, it's the flip where it's like, well, you're much more gifted in mercy than I am, and I really wish I was that way. Oh, who are you? Who did God ask you to be? That doesn't mean we don't grow in different traits. Like, of these, mercy is like the low, oh, service and mercy are like the lowest on my list. Like, if, if you were to give like an assessment, like a personality assessment, like it would be awesome if I scored a one out of 100 on either of those, right? I'm a therapist, right? And mercy is like way down here, right? Because as a therapist, I counsel out of a teaching and prophesying gift, truth speaking, and, and information passing on, right? But if I was trying to be the mercy giver counselor, I'm not in my sweet spot. It doesn't mean that I can't work on developing mercy and empathy and compassion, and I do, but it's out of a growth model, not out of a I need to be a different person space, right? Um, and I'm not good at service. Like, my, my sweet mother can walk into a room and see what chairs need to be put up and where something needs to be picked up and what will tangibly help other people. And I walk in and be like, room looks fine. <laughs> if you ask me to do something, I'd be like, okay. But I am not going to see it. Right? So I can grow in some of those things, but that's never going to be the thing that I cannot not do. For some of you, sitting with someone empathically is something you cannot not do. It's just gonna ooze out of you. For others of you, you're a learner and you can't help but share in the information you learn, right? You cannot not do that. But part of this authenticity with self is going, how am I actually wired? What did God make me to do to be? Because in that, I have a very specific call and role within the body of Christ. And if I'm trying to be someone I'm not, I'm missing out on the role that God actually has for me, and the church is missing out on what I could bring. Because I'm trying to fill someone else's spot. And that, that impedes someone else's process, that impedes my process. And it, like you said, it, it, it doesn't glorify and honor God to go, I don't think you got that right. I think there's a passage about the clay saying to the potter, why did you make me this way, and how we're not supposed to do that. Right? So. One of the beautiful things about this passage too is that I think it gives one permission not to know everything yeah. or to make people think that, that you know everything. Right. Yep. It, it allows you to recognize that I and everybody else in this room have mm -hmm. been given gifts by God. And, and I've not been given others. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and it draws us to uh, a community. Yes. And so I, I just think that's so special about mm -hmm. Which encourages, again, that vulnerability and that authenticity between us all because it means that I come to you and say, I'm really not good at this, but you are. Can you help? Can you come alongside here? But I'm real good at budgets. And I'm real good at color-coded Excel spreadsheets. They make me happy. <laughs> right? And so, you know, where does that 
come in where we get we that vulnerability allows for greater community and connection and in that that exhale happens of I don't have to carry the weight of all of these things but it starts by looking around and going where do I fit whether it's in spiritual gifts language or it's in personality assessment typology or it's just in what you like and what you don't like and what you're good at and what you're not good at but part of that is that initial reflection on can I look at look myself in the mirror and go I really wish I was good at this but I'm not but I am good at this so when talking about the imposter with ourself Manning says imposters are preoccupied with acceptance and approval he or she buys into outside experiences to furnish a personal source of meaning the pursuit of money, power, glamour, sexual prowess, recognition, and status enhances one's self-importance and creates the illusion of success. The imposter is what he does. Okay. One of the biggest shifts in identity is going from what do I do to who am I? And it's far more nebulous and it's much harder to, to kind of articulate because I can say I'm an educator, I'm a counselor, um, I'm a speaker, I can do all of these things, but at the end of my life, what does that actually tell you about who I am? You may make some stereotypes about it, but you don't actually know who I am. One of my favorite activities that I make my students do in their first semester of seminary is I ask them, well, and keep in mind most of my, my average students 27. Okay. I say, who do you want to be when you're 80? I said, I don't, I don't want you to write your obituary because that's what have you done. I want to know who you want to be when you're 80. How do you describe that person? Not in accomplishments, but in being and in presence and in characteristics. And when you're working with teenagers, you put that at like 25 because they can't really think past there. You're just real old, right? And, and, but you want, you want it out far enough, however old you are, you want that date out far enough that you can't accomplish it tomorrow and you can't accomplish it next year. You're gonna have to practice to become it. Because all of the choices you make today and how you interact with other people, how you sit with yourself or don't, you are practicing to become that person at 80 or 90, 75, or wherever we're gonna, wherever our life ends. Okay. So this big piece on it is not so much what I do. It should be about who I am. So I teach career counseling, and um, I do a fair amount of career counseling as well. And one of the things we often talk about is that we are in a society of um, driven accomplishment. That is a cultural norm, and you are defined by what you do. And what we're finding in the counseling room is that <coughs> As boomers have reached retirement, they're freaking out about their identity, right? <laughs> They'll say they're freaking out about the finances for their retirement, and some of that is true, but that's also a smokescreen for the, the identity pieces that underlie that, right? Um, and I can't do this without hand motion, so I apologize for the audio that doesn't get to see this, but there is the thing that we come back to time and again in that conversation is that what our culture has said is that who you are in or what you do informs who you are so the energy comes this way right so i'm a teacher i'm an accountant i'm a doctor 
I'm a business person, and that gives me some sense of identity or worth, right? But what scripture asks us to do is to go internal and go, who did God make you to be? And understanding that being comes up out of the overflow into what we do. And so the energy has to come this way. And the imposter doesn't like this. The imposter goes, let's do it this way. Come at me. Because then I don't have to deal with what's in here. But when we start here, then who I am can come out in my career. It can come out in ministry. It can come out in volunteerism. It can come out in parenting. My job title has nothing to do with this. Yeah. Very much so. My performance. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's almost like Rome all over again. <laughs> it's not a gladiator, but mm -hmm. it's, don't you accept me? Don't you love me? Because of what I've done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and if, because that's measurable. It's really hard to measure an internal quality. We can feel it. We can feel it from someone else. You know when you're sitting with somebody and you're like, I don't trust that. Right? That you're saying all the nice things, but I, I don't, I'm, mm -mm. you get a weird feeling and you're like, I don't, I don't really want to talk to you anymore because this doesn't feel genuine. Can you measure that? You can't put that on a scale or put that on a show, but you can feel it. Right? So this imposter with self comes into play. So how do we develop the authenticity within our own self? Self-awareness is really critical in this. Some of us have it more than others, but it, can, it is a practice as well. It is, a, it is the practice of being honest with yourself, taking in feedback in various forms, um, and then letting that inform how you proceed. Right? So four different kind of phases of this or chronology of this. Part of it says, who have I been? What, and that may look at what have I done, but it's also what have been the motives behind what I have done. So who have I been? Who am I currently? Not who do I show people, but at night, alone, in the quiet, what are my thoughts? What are my feelings? What are my fears? Why do I do what I do? Your motives are far more a part of your identity than your behavior. Who, who do I wish I was? So there's nothing wrong with wishing or dreaming we become a better human. <laughs> but is it within the bounds of the human God's made you to be? Okay? My five foot three and three quarters with a spinal fusion was never going to be a WNBA player. It's just not. Right? And I, I have no athletic ability, no athletic interest. And if I wanted to be, maybe I could discipline myself to some degree to accomplish some athletic abilities. But I was the girl that was super thankful for Erica who came in last in the mile because I came in second in la to last. <laughs> and Lord bless her because she was always behind me, right? And I was n my sister's a track runner. Like, I was never going to be her, right? Her legs also came up to, like, here on me. So that was a thing. But who do I wish I was? That can be in character. That can be in performance. That can be in abilities. But part of being honest with ourselves is dealing with where do I feel like I'm lacking? Not because I have to become that, but because that's an honest question of in this moment, in who I am, part of who I am is who I wish I was. 
And then who am I becoming? If I'm honest with myself, who am I practicing to become at 80? If this pattern continues, who will I be? I am by nature sarcastic, critical, cynical, um, and, and sometimes that's fun. <laughs> sometimes it feels empowering. But when I think about if this progresses, where does that leave me? Because then that leaves me as impatient, unforgiving, ungracious, um, harsh, cold, detached. I don't want to be that person. Um, and so who am I becoming, in many ways does come back to who am I, but it's, it's, it's not, it's challenging the thought of like, oh no, I want to I be the really warm old lady in the, in the retirement community that everybody wants to talk to and wants to chat with. I am not that person. Like if I'm not like I'm a, I got work at that, right? And that I'm not just going to magically wake up and be her. I've, I've got to be honest about some of those pieces. Okay. So some of it starts with the self-awareness. The other thing that I think often gets lost is we have to be able to sit in silence. Um, I've watched someone walk through a a resistance to this process over the last year. And one of the biggest things was that their therapist asked them to take 10 minutes a day and sit in silence. And they couldn't do it. And they refused to do it. And it was like, I, they said, I, can't, I just can't handle it. There's, there's, it's just, I have so much anxiety and I just, I don't like, I, I can't do it. And the thought of starting with two minutes a day or one minute a day, they just shut it all down. And what you're missing in that is that that is, that to me just like this major flag went off. It was like, oh my gosh, you hate you. Like, that's sad. I don't want you to hate you. But in order to get past that, you've got to be able to look at you. And maybe that means that you invite someone who you do trust to sit with you in silence. And go, I don't know how to do this, but can we just sit here for two minutes and then we can have a beer? Fine. You know? But that silence is where the imposter freaks out because he has no role. There's no place for the imposter in silence. And, and it forces you, forces him out, and forces you to have to go, what's behind that shield? And even if you start with small spaces, pursue silence and, and see what you find. It may scare you to death. But behind the fear, then is the opportunity to step into that freedom. Okay. Then within that, after that silence, comes reflection. So as I've gone through these questions with myself, or these prompts, and I sit in silence, then it is about, instead of just being like, okay, we're done with that, I've got to reflect on some level of what am I learning? What am I noticing? What are the patterns? What are the themes? but also then coming to others that you do feel safe with, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and asking for their reflection. What do you notice? So my best friend from college lives in Madison, Wisconsin. She and her husband and their kids were just in town this last week. And she is one of the people that probably knows me better than I know myself in a lot of ways. Like there are, 
I'm the thinking friend, she's the feeling friend, right? And together we balance out the world well. So there are plenty of times, especially in my last year, where I've called her and been like, I need you to help me figure out how I feel about this, because I don't know. <laughs> I can tell you what I think, and I can tell you what's going on, but I need you to put feeling words to it for me, right? And, and in this, I've been, um, like I mentioned, I've been going through and learning more and more about the Enneagram. And in that, there was some, we had a conversation the other day where it's like, okay, I see myself fitting here and having these characteristics, but I also see these. What do you see? Where does this fit? Where doesn't this fit? How do you experience me? Because you get me pretty raw and unfiltered. And that reflection piece um, becomes really critical, both what I do on my own and what I allow other people to come in to speak to. Right. What are your thoughts on this process? It's intimidating. Yeah. This, a lot of times I think growth and health is simple, but hard. This isn't a complicated list. It's not a, it's not a, there's, there's nothing tricky about it, but it's really difficult. But there's a barrier. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And part of the self-reflection becomes, I should have added this bullet, what is my what, what is my fear? What is the barrier I have to reflecting on these questions? The truth is, too, that, you know, the world moves at such a ridiculous pace. Mm -hmm. You know, everything you do yesterday is forgotten. Mm -hmm. It's totally irrelevant what you did yesterday. You could have saved the world. <laughs> right. What's your Facebook post today? And why can't we go back and say, yesterday was wonderful. I want to... Mm -hmm. And you can. And that's because that perspective is about what did you do yesterday? Rather than going, yep, what I did reflects who I am, but that is an ever-progressing, continual process. And so I've been a journaler probably since I was 12. Um, and there have been some seasons where I don't do it as much, but that means like once a week instead of daily. Um, and so I'm a huge proponent of journaling because I I will just cruise through but it forces me at the end of every day to slow down and one of my practices for the last year is that every entry starts with a thank you um, whether that's thank you for beautiful weather today whether that's because my journals I, I needed an audience so I had to write it as like a prayer journal I couldn't just be like dear diary that felt weird to me <laughs> um, so <laughs> it, it's it's written as if God is the audience in that um, and so I, I have 95% of the time for the last year started each of those journal entries with a thank you um, because it, I have to slow down and actually reflect on my day then. And it's not just this dump or this kind of navel-gazing reflection time. It forces me to go, no, this is your life, not mine. You've brought things into my path that I need to be attentive to whether they're relational or experiential or aesthetic or whatever, what can I be grateful for? Because that also shows me what I value, which is part of that self-awareness piece. And it shows me where I struggle with that. Because when I look back and I'm like, thank you for a nice day. Well, what? fine. What else happened? You know? And sometimes it's been winter and you really like that it's a nice day. And that's, that, is a, that is a true delight and a gratitude. 
but I, I try to make them interactionary, relational, experiential things where what it showed me, um, especially over the last, it's been about the last nine months, God showed up so consistently and so profoundly on a daily basis that I would have missed if I hadn't slowed down enough. And that slow down, like, as it could be five minutes at the end of a day. Remember everybody used to have quiet time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I came out of Navigators, so we, that was a big deal. And one of the things for me was that a quiet time, because my background is also that that quiet time was you have to be reading Scripture that whole time. That's what a quiet time is. And for me, my faith starts in my head, and then it works down into the rest of my body. And if my quiet time is only reading, I don't let it, it doesn't give me time for it to come down. So, yes, I need Scripture time in that. That is part of it. But the journaling part is where I meet God. Um, and sometimes it's in that journaling that God goes, I want you to go read this passage or flip your Bible open and see where I take you. And not as like, oh, this is just, this is the only option, but I have a fair amount of scriptural, scripture memory. So in that, a lot of times God will take that memorized scripture and be like, go back to this passage, sit there for a bit. Um, it's a good thing in navigators, the discipline. Mm-hmm. Yep. Every parachurch group has its <laughs> pros and cons, but it was a really po- positive thing for me. But I also grew up with Awanas, and I grew up with parents who really valued scripture memory, and that was embedded, um, which I wasn't planning to incorporate that. But when we get into self-authenticity with God, I'll put it in there. The more you can do scripture memory, the better. Um, even if that's a verse a month, but something that gets that in there is that that's where God can speak to you. When, when the imposter's in the way, it's what can permeate through. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to say, I, I think truly think there's merit in this for sure. Mm-hmm. But when you look at those questions, mm-hmm. you're not going to give a snap judgment answer. They really require the They time. do. And at the same time that you take the time to re- that it takes to, to give thought to it, I think there's a risk involved in preparing a, an answer that may not be honest mm-hmm. with yourself. Right. Because it's like, I want it to be right. I mean, I mm-hmm. really put a lot of thought into this. Right. Thing. So it's, it's, a, it's a paradox. It is. And that's where the other two pieces of being authentic with God and others comes into play because that feedback informs how we answer this. So we start here, but then we also come back here. And it, it is a continual circle and cycle. Um, but we have to at least start here. One of the activities I, I do in my career class with students is that I have them write out their life in chapters um, and, and looking at the themes. And so like it, if it was a chapter book, what would be the title of each chapter and what might be the subtitle or the thesis statement of each chapter or the, the themes or the lessons learned in that. And I, so I teach this class generally twice a year. I do the activity with them each time because each time my chapters change. Because where you are in time changes how you reflect back. And you see different things and you see different themes. And so I realized that mine were changing and so I've actually started keeping them each year. Um, each semester that I teach them so that I can go back and go, okay, well, these stayed the same, but this is taken on a whole different perspective now. And so these questions aren't a one and done. They're things that are on a, maybe not a daily basis, but maybe for a while, on a regular basis that I keep coming back to, how, how do I answer these? Yeah. Maybe it's back to the idea of practice. Yes. Are they like 
authenticity is not just uh-huh. being an authentic person. You have to choose right. to practice honesty with yourself, yes. which is really scary. Yeah. But, yep. It's got to be that choice. It does. It does. So from there, we're going to move on to authenticity with God. And like I said, these are all, like, those arrows keep going. There isn't, they are not a linear process. And the arrows keep going. So they're going to inform each other. So what does scripture say about authenticity with God? David models this well, and he says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? For you created my inmost being. My frame was not hidden from you. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you know Psalm 139, I cut out parts, right? (laughs) But (laughs) these are pieces going through, right? Um, One of the simplest ah ahas in my process was I had a mentor, and you're all going to laugh at me for this, but I had a mentor who looked at me one day and was like, okay, that's, you believe God's omniscient, right? Like, he knows everything. I was like, yeah. And she goes, then why are you hiding from him? He already knows. So why don't you put the cards on the table so you're both on the same page? He's already said He knows it already. So why are you pretending like he doesn't? That's only hurting you. Okay? And I, I run up against that a lot where we go, wait a second. Why am I self-protecting from God? Why am I trying to hide this? He already knows. He knows that I'm super angry, and he knows that I'm really sad, and he knows that I'm having all of these reactions that are, whether they're heretical or they're inappropriate or whatever I'm afraid they're going to be, they're already there and he already knows it. So why don't I put it out there so we can talk about it? It's simple, but it's hard. It's difficult. So the imposter, Manning, tells us, we refuse to be our true self with God and then wonder why we lack intimacy with him. The imposter is frustrated because he never hears God's voice. He cannot, since God sees no one there. Prayer is death to every identity that does not come from God. When we bring the imposter before God, we cannot relate to God in that way because he doesn't see us as the imposter. He sees us as the person he made us to be. And he's not relating with that imposter. He's relating with us. In his graciousness... He'll humor the imposter to try to get past it. But we are not going to find intimacy there because that is a shell of a human. That is not the actual human. Um, thoughts on this? Sense? Okay. So how do we develop this authenticity with God? One is actually meditating on how God sees you. This is where scripture memory and just time in scripture comes into play. Letting God speak for himself as to who he sees us and through, through the blood of Christ to who, who he sees us to be. Right? So Isaiah 43, 1, 4, and 54, 10. Again, I, I stole this from Manning. He put them together, and I was like, I'm totally doing that. <laughs> so um, it says, do not be afraid, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes because you are honored, and I love you. The mountains may depart, the hills be shaken, but my love for you will never leave you, and my covenant of peace with you will never be shaken. Um, In the midst of 
I go back to my health issues because it was this foundational time of shaping how I re- related with God. This Isaiah 43.1, that I've called you by name, you are mine, was super foundational for me. Um, it was a truth I'd heard, but it took on a different meaning in that this calling you by name, there, there's a personableness to that. It's not just like, oh, humans suck. I guess I'll redeem them. Come on in. Like, there, there's a personableness there. And yes, there is re- and there's a redemptive piece. It's not just, uh, again, you suck, but I guess you can just stay here. It's like, no, I'm going to take you in. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to bring you into the fullness of who you could be because I love you and you're mine. And when something's ours, we have a pride in it. We, we have this delight in it. Um, and so whether it's this passage or it's others that God has brought into your life that speak to you, meditating on how God sees you. Um, that meditation is, whether that's, like I said, memorizing scripture, or that's having a verse that you keep coming back to, to read over and over or to journal about. Um, but letting God speak for himself. Not who we fear God to be, but who he shows himself to be. There's a book called Mistaken Identity by Galtier and Galtier. Um, it's out of print, but uh, Amazon has, sometimes you can find some out of print ones on Amazon. Um, it's a, like a maroon cover with like goldish yellow writing on it. Um, and the back cover is fabulous because it's got the picture of the authors. It's a husband-wife team, and it totally looks like a 1980s church directory picture. <laughs> it makes me really happy. Um, so, <laughs> but in that book, um, the authors go through these 14 false, false gods that we create. And um, that when we, when we look at who God is, they take these 14 character, they take 14 characteristics of God, I think they are, and what happens when you overinflate or underinflate certain characteristics? And they then give them like the policeman God or the marshmallow God or <coughs> these different, and some, some of the names are a little politically incorrect anymore. That's just probably why it's out of date, out of print. Um, but that concept was also really foundational for me of like, where have I altered God's image? And we all do. We are finite. He is not. We are not omniscient. He is. But where can I go, oh, no, I really see God as this vengeful God, and I miss out on the grace that complements that. And when those spokes on a wheel are rightly aligned, it runs smoothly. But when one is overemphasized and one is de-emphasized, we get a thumper, right? Um, and so looking at where, where have I made God in my own image, made God in the image I fear him to be, not who he actually shows himself to be, and where do I get to bring that before me and go, I don't know who you are. Because one of the things with authenticity is that we have to feel some level of safety either with our own identity or with the identity of the other person in order to bring an authentic self. And if we're sitting in relationship with God and we go, I don't trust you, it's going to be really hard to bring our authentic self there. And we got to work on that then of what is it in me that I'm afraid of? What is it in you that I'm afraid of? And it becomes a process that we're simultaneously working through but being aware that if I don't bring my authentic self it means I on some level don't feel safe with either you or with me or both and then as was said in that last quote of the imposter 
prayer is our one of our greatest um, weapons against inauthenticity with God. Um, and part of the the what the imposter says is like, no, 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 you, well, of course you can't pray or you can't bring this to God until you're clean on this. Until you can bring your full true self, do you just, don't, don't show up. And God goes, bring me what you got and I'll help you. In relationship together, you discover more of who you are. The more we learn about who God is, the more we understand who we are. The more we understand who God made us to be, the more we understand who he is. And it's this reciprocal learning and growing. And so even if that prayer is simply, God, I know I'm supposed to be in prayer right now, and I don't want to be, and this is all you get. Start there. That act of obedience begins some of the softening and the removing of that 20-ton shield. Okay? Um, and there have been seasons where that's all I could do. That all my journal says is, this is the day. I'm writing, like, it will say, I am writing something because I feel like I'm supposed to write something, but I have nothing to say right now. Because I needed to keep the discipline. I needed to keep the pathway open and to leave room that God might show up in a way I didn't expect or that in that practice I might have the ability to step in in a different way that day. Um, but, and, and I do better if my prayer is written. Like that, it slows me down enough. It keeps me focused enough. Others of you, it might be taking the dog for a walk and talking out loud. And, and if you feel better, put your headphones on so people think you're on your phone, fine. But to start that conversation invites God to do a spiritual work of removing the imposter, that it's not just on you. This is a spiritual thing that God can help you with. Any thoughts on authenticity with God before we move on? I think the last thing that you just said, hmm. really the imposter is a spiritual yeah. uh, work. Practice, yeah, and work. Uh -huh. Conversation that yep. is on God as much more. I don't know, as much on us, him as I think it's a. It, I think it's a... I don't know that I'd be comfortable saying it's more on him, yeah. um, but I think it is something that we cannot do without him. Because, yeah, because I think there is this this element of I don't know, like the imposters. Huh, I don't know if it's sole job, but but one of the primary tasks of the imposters to keep us from the self that God created us to be. That's that is a spiritual battle right there, and so. I have a responsibility in that battle, but it can be a whole lot less taxing on me if I let God do his part. And there can be incredibly authentic non-Christian people. I have a good friend of mine from my doc program who will look you straight in the eye and say, I know I'm not a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian, and she's probably one of the most authentic people I know. There is, but that doesn't let us off the hook. But I, I think that's why I go, I don't know that it's all on God, but I do think it is a spiritual work. Yeah? yeah. Question, so um, silence was under the authenticity of itself, mm -hmm. prayer was with God, and um, I found that sometimes I'm afraid of 
afraid of sounds because that's when the imposter speaks the loudest. Uh, uh-huh. And um, do you just have any thoughts on how prayer can maybe be in time with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think each of us have to wrestle in kind of what are these spaces for us. Um, and I, th- I also think silence before God is part of prayer. Um, that prayer is not just me talking at God. It is often me being silent before God. Um, but with that, the self-reflection pieces come up of like, okay, if the imposter is getting really loud here, what then do I bring before God? that I go, okay, God, in this silence, I'm hearing this and this and this and this. What's your truth that counters that? Or is there is there truth in there? Or where, where does that need to be rebutted? Um, there are times where my journals go, as I'm writing this, this is what I'm hearing. And sometimes there are good things and sometimes there are bad things. But even just getting them out, the, the imposter thrives when he's not called out. It's that Things that stay in the dark have so much more power than when you bring them to the light. And so if that imposter is getting louder, write it down. Um, Because it holds so much power when it stays contained. And so write it down, speak it out to a spouse, a good friend, somebody you trust to go, this is what's running in my head. And it's usually in that that it doesn't magically lose power, but it now feels tangible to fight in a different way. and sometimes this piece in the silence, when it gets really loud, it's kind of like a kid throwing a tantrum. You just got to let them burn out, right? Let them just work it out. And then when they calm down, then we can work on something. And the imposter gets all keyed up, and he's hoping that you'll react before he burns out. But if you let it spin out, it only has so much repertoire because it's not truth-based. So it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall out. Um, it doesn't mean it will come back. <coughs> but can you sit, you know, the, that person I was saying that couldn't sit in silence, it's because all of that was running. And the thought of letting it run out felt so overwhelming and overpowering. But also then wouldn't say out loud, put on paper, express to someone else, this is what's going on. Uh-huh. And we can't fight that on our own. We're not meant to. That's a spiritual battle. It's a community battle to have that identity affirmed in a positive way outside of ourselves as well as internally. So then the next piece is authenticity with others. Um, depending on who you are, the authenticity with God piece or the authenticity with others piece is the hardest part. It just kind of depends on who you are. Um, for some of us, authenticity with self is hard, but once we get there, the others kind of fall in line. For others, it's like, I, I know who I am, but I'm still not ready to show you who I am. Um, and I'm sure I'm not going to tell God who I am. And so each of us have to kind of identify where do we need to start, where's our weak spot right now. Okay. So what does Scripture say about <clears throat> living authentically with other people? One is in Psalm 1, <clears throat> we're instructed to choose wisely who we bring into these inner circles with us. So blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, nor stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his, day, oh, his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. So when we talk about being authentic with other people, that doesn't mean you air everything for everybody. 
It means you choose wisely. And it means you choose people, kind of like Oprah was saying, of like, when you're around inauthentic people, it's hard to be authentic. So who are the people that are going to foster this, welcome this, and create a safe enough space? Not a perfect space, because they are fallible humans too, and they're going to hurt your feelings, and they're going to disappoint you. But is their general motive, their general posture for you? Um, and for you discovering who it is that God wants you to be. Okay. So we want to choose wisely. The other thing that scripture says is that we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to be authentic with other people. Right. So we've got three different passages up here, Romans 12, 15, Galatians 6, 2, and James 5, 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. In all three of these imperatives, the assumption is that people know you and that you know other people. You cannot help me rejoice over something if you don't know why that's so important to me and why I'm so excited about it. You can't help carry my burdens if you don't know what they are. And this idea of being able to confess our sins to one another, the evangelical church doesn't do well. But there is a freedom that comes when I can sit with a brother or a sister in Christ and go, I'm really sucking it up at this right now. It's horrible. And I keep wrestling with this and I keep tripping over it. And I don't, I, I'm, I'm not winning at this process here. Because, again, our sin is a spiritual battle. It's not just a willful battle. It's not just I got to just buckle down and knuckle down harder. There is a battle at play. And if I can ask you to be a part of that battle, then that takes some of that pressure off. I have a greater chance of actually being successful in that battle. But that means I have to be honest with you about what makes me excited, about what weighs me down, about what I'm struggling with. All of those things have different kinds of vulnerability and different layers of vulnerability. For some of you, you have no problem communicating where the burdens are. But to share what you're excited about, what brings you joy, actually is a more vulnerable space because what if someone knew and then they took it away? Or what if I said this out loud and it got tainted in some way and then I don't have it at all? I'm much more comfortable living in the dark places because I at least know what they are. I don't want to step into the happiness because it, it could be elusive. And others of you are the flip side. You're happy to share the positive things that are going on, but you don't want to share the heavy stuff. This assumes that we are authentic with one another and at least growing in it because all of these things also foster that authenticity. So it becomes a reciprocal relationship. So what about the imposter with others? Manning says, the sad irony is that the imposter cannot experience intimacy in any relationship. His narcissism excludes others. And incapable of intimacy with self and out of touch with his feelings, intuitions, and insight, the imposter is insensitive to the moods, needs, and dreams of others. Reciprocal sharing is impossible. The imposter has built life around achievements, success, busyness, and self-centered activities that bring gratification and praise from others. What do you think? Uh huh. <laughs> and he packs them tight. Narcissist? I'm not a narcissist. I'm always thinking of other people and how 
<laughs> so, but the last piece, how they're going to think about you, that's the narcissism. Exactly. I mean, right. you think you're not, and then right. you are. Yes. So one of the, the ironies is that self-loathing is just as narcissistic as self-promotion. Because either way, you have an inappropriate view of yourself, and you are over-inflating something in who you are. Um, you might know this quote better, but I think it's a C.S. Lewis quote that says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking rightly of yourself in light of the cross. And in that, there is nothing wrong or unhumble of saying, I'm really good at these things. Because that's what God made me to be. Now, if I say, I'm really good at these things, and therefore I'm better than you, <laughs> now I'm not humble. Right? But anything that dis distorts that view of self is on some level a narcissistic response. Because I've put how you see me or how I present myself at the center rather than the overflow of who I am that God's made me to be. Did that word even exist before 1900? I don't know. Well, it would have to some degree because, it ref I don't, and I don't know how it was being used, but it reflects back to mythology and Narcissus, and Narcissus who fell in love with his, the reflection of himself in a pool. Um, and so whether it was a clinical term or it was a... <laughs> there's an entire book yeah. on that. Uh, but no, I mean, and there's, there is... Um, that's a whole other side conversation we're going to leave alone right now. <laughs> um, so, any other thoughts on this? Absolutely right. And I think when you think about the people in your life that you do trust, it's because you know them. Yeah. There's a sense of knowing there that either, either you feel that they know you and are for you, or that you know them and they're not going to surprise you in something drastic. Um, that doesn't mean you can always predict their behavior, but that their behavior is consistent with who you know them to be. Um, and that then how do we be that person? That if, if you know me well, that doesn't necessarily mean you can walk into a situation and be like, oh, Betsy's going to say this, do this, here's what her reactions are going to be. But what I do, you're going to go, yep, that fits. Right? And, and maybe you're going to, certain situations, you're going to be able to go, yeah, she's going to have that reaction. She's, you're going to know. But authenticity doesn't mean I'm this robot, that everything's always the same. It means that there's a consistency to my character that shows up across time, across relationships, across environments. So that if, if you see me at work and how I interact there, and you see me here and you see me at home, there's not going to be a discrepancy or, between the character of that person who shows up.
So developing authenticity with others, um, one is about that intentionally pick your people and invite them along. Um, one of the things, again, with my health issues that I did, and I've fostered for the last, it's been almost, well, 15 years now, is, it sounds, it sounds kind of judgy, but go with me, okay? So I actually wrote this down, and I went through at the time, and I was like, okay, who are my core people? And put names to that core. These are the people that know me, get to know everything. When they say, how's your day, you go, it was real crappy. And let me tell you why. And it's full out. You get the full story, right? And that, that group is probably pretty small. For some of you, it's one person. It's generally no more than five because it's hard to maintain more than that level of intimate relationship there. But then who's your level two people? Put names down. And not be, not, you're not going to tell them they're level two. <laughs> right? But you know they're level two, right? And in level two, and you're not going to hit everybody, but you're going to go, oh, okay, so I've identified like five, ten people that would fit into level two. And they're the people that when they, when you, they ask, you know, how's your day going? You might go, you know, it's been a tough day, but I'm okay. You know, there's a little bit of disclosure, but you're not going to go into everything. And, and you might, and, and they're often the people that you're testing out. Are you a person that's going to have to back up to level three, or are you a person that maybe someday will surprise me and moves into level one? But I either don't know you well enough, or we don't have enough time together, that we're going to keep you in level two for right now. These are often the people that maybe you work with, and you work closely with, and so they kind of need to know if you're having a bad day, because it's going to affect them, but they don't need to know all the why behind it. Um, so this level two. And so what I found is I wrote out level two. Like there were people that I didn't think of at that moment. But when I then was interacting with them, I was like, oh, Laura's at the same level that Melissa is. And I wrote Melissa's name down. I didn't think about Laura, but that helps me know. Like the, the similar type of relationship. And then we get into level three. And those are the people that ask you how you're doing because it's a social politeness. And you go, great, I'm fine. Right? And you just move on. It's, it's the grocery store checker. It's the person at church that you know their name, but you can never, or you know their face, but you can never remember their name, right? And so you're not going to go into all of these things. And you put names in that level too. Because then you have a sense of, as you move through, who have I decided gets everything? And then who gets the next and who gets the next? Because if we go, oh, I have to share everything with everybody, that's not actually authentic either. Because authenticity has to do with the rightness of this relationship. So if we have a close enough relationship, I can tell you more. But if we're not that close, it's not actually appropriate for me to share everything with you. Okay? So you pick your people carefully. And the other thing with that is if this is your core group of people, you tell them they're your core. And you invite them to speak in. Most people assume that you have someone else who's going to call you out on your crap, and it's not going to be them. But part of authenticity with other people is that you say, you are one of my people. And I, have gi I am giving you permission to be the mirror back, to show me where I have these flaws, to show me where I can grow so that my authenticity with self can be increased, so that my authenticity with God can get better, so that my authenticity with you can get better. And if I've chosen well... Those people's reflections, I keep coming back to this phrase, are for me. They're not going to be reflecting that back as a way to crush me or demean me or elevate themselves. They're going to go, I love you and care about you enough that I want you to know that when you say something this way, your tone communicates this whether you mean to or not. 
Okay? So invite them in and tell them you're, they're that person. Um, it doesn't have to be this grand like dinner proposal here. You're my person. It's not that. But it's just, hey, I'm, I'm really working on this piece of authenticity. And as you see things, I would welcome feedback. And you might say, I'm going to tell I, I've done this with friends where I've said, I will tell you my natural bent is to refute you, is to tell you why that's not right and why what I did was okay and my justification behind it, and I will burn out. Like, I will go through that, and then I'll go, okay, what do I need to learn from this? And I've gotten better that my defensive time is getting cut back and back, but I know that that's my first reaction. I'm going to justify myself first. And so to say, I, I know I'm going to justify me, and others of you are going to go, I'm going to get real quiet for a while because I'm going to want to hide, and I'm going to try to give you silent treatment, but I promise I'm working on it. And knowing part of that self-authenticity with self is how do you handle confrontation or, or criticism? Um, and if you bring that to that person, which is a vulnerability in of itself, to go, here's how I don't respond well. I need you to wait me out or meet me in it in this way. That in of itself builds the authenticity in the, in the relationship. The other part of authenticity with others connects back with authenticity with self and has to do with a self-reflective piece, which says, if I wasn't afraid of blank, I would blank. So as you go through a day and you realize that you agreed to something you didn't want to, that you um, said you were fine when you were really angry, and these different pieces, if I wasn't afraid of blank, if I wasn't afraid of embarrassment, if I wasn't afraid of rejection, I would say, do, be, express, whatever. And part of the, why this is under authenticity with others is because that's where we see this show up. We don't see this piece just in ourselves. It only comes to light when I'm interacting with you and I go, oh, I don't like that I did that. Why, why, did, why did that wall go up all of a sudden? Or why did I, where, where did that voice come from? You take, on the, you take on the sweet voice. I don't have a sweet voice. <laughs> so if I take on a sweet voice, it's a bad day. Like that's, something's gone wrong, right? Um, so where, how do I start paying attention to those things that go, ooh, my real self did not just show up right there. Something else got in the way. Okay. And then the other piece is consider the reflection coming back to you. Um, that's that piece of when someone actually gives you feedback, can you move past the defensiveness? Can you move past the shutdown piece and go, what do I need to hear there? If this person is for me, is there something I can take either in my own reflection or bring it to the Lord and go, where do I need to know this? And where does this need to inform how I go about things differently? Um, and it doesn't mean that that reflection back to you is always correct. That may be that person's baggage. But... I have a colleague of mine that says three times, and you got to at least ask if it's Jesus. Right? So if you get the same feedback at least three different times from three different people, you got to at least stop and ask if it's Jesus trying to talk to you. Right? And, and where, where does that come into play of going, I'm consistently getting this feedback? And for me, growing up especially, that was that I, I was perceived as harsher, more direct, um, more confrontational than I actually felt. And so I had to learn in many ways how to hedge or soften what I, what I would say. Um, and then I had to do therapy about undoing some of that. But <laughs> some of it was because the community I was in 
was such a, a um, they were such mercy givers and such empathy givers that my prophet piece, the prophet that is this tr- not the truth speaker, not the, for- the future teller, that was really hurtful. And I had to learn how to soften it in a way that it could be received. Okay. And I still got to go, are they asking me to be different than I am? No, they're asking me to use the gift I have in a way that they can hear it. And that's a different kind of correction. Right. Um, questions on this? Thoughts on this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. People may know the Greek and Roman god of self-centeredness was narcissus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. may not know that the Greek and Roman god of insincerity mm-hmm. was Janus. Mm-hmm. It literally has two faces. Mm-hmm. Yep. I kind of wish we had a word <laughs> in our language for Janusism. Mm-hmm. We call it hypocrite. We call it hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, but two-faces is a much more vivid description. Hypocrisy can just be a word. Two-faced, we get an image of that. Right. Correct. And that's when, when we think of inauthenticity, to think of it as a mask is, I think, is helpful instead of just, oh, I'm afraid to bring my real self. That's a, that's a, it's kind of a cop-out. Because it's true, but it keeps us distanced for how then we actually appear. We appear two-faced. We appear with a mask. We appear with this 20-ton shield that we think is protecting us, but it's hiding us. Um, and I don't, I don't think this is something we ever fully arrive at, this authenticity with self, God, and others. I think part of our fallenness is that we hide. And it, our redemption process is this continuation of moving further and further toward the unhidden, the, the vulnerable, the authentic. Um, and, and as we go through different life experiences, we discover different things about ourselves and what it meant to be authentic 20 years ago is not what it's going to mean to be authentic 10 years from now. And so this asks us to step into an ever-growing process of discovery and freedom. Um, the fear is that the more I discover, the more I will be overwhelmed. But it's actually that the more you discover, the more freedom you have. Um, And I've watched people run from this, and all it does is perpetuate the self-loathing. It doesn't actually make you more comfortable with yourself. It doesn't actually make you safer within yourself. The prison gets tighter and tighter and smaller and smaller. and as a, as a body of Christ, as a community here at Waterstone, that's not what I want for any of us. Um, the freedom that comes with being able to be, as well as we can, the fullness of who God made us to be, there, there is nothing like that. Um, and the joy and the, the groundedness and the contentedness that that enables us to bring into even the hardest of circumstances. Any final thoughts? Well, I, I just want to say that the three entities, uh, after you have presented them, mm-hmm. and really defined individually. Um, 
why they have to be cyclical and could never be linear. No. There, there, there were so many ways where they're intertwined. Absolutely. Strong. Yes. Yes. They inform one another. They strengthen one another. They, they help one another. Um, and you can't, if you pull any of them out by themselves, they become far more burdensome. They become nearly impossible because you have to have the other pieces with it. And that's a big thumper. Uh-huh. That's a big thumper. You're right. Yes, sir. theorist of psychosocial development and he talks through eight different stages life stages that we all go through regardless of culture gender anything like that and each stage has a tension that we have to navigate and the idea is that no matter kind of no matter how you navigate previous stages like if it doesn't go well you kind of move on to the next stage but with a limp and then you carry a stronger and stronger limp with you until you can actually go back and remedy some of those things but one of the the, the last stage has to do with basically how well you've navigated and, and mediated your limbs. And in that stage, you either get the person that is contented and joyful and has something to share but is peaceful in being around others, and you're the person then that people want to be around. Um, the flip side of that is the, the crotchety old man in a nursing home <laughs> or the bitter old woman that is just complaining about everything. That they, they reach that age where they should have that freedom, but the limp has gotten so strong at that point that they're miserable. And so I said, you've navigated well. If in that space you land at 80 and go, that's kind of nice. <laughs> I got stuff to share. I'm pretty okay with me. You know, that, that means you've met, navigated that process well. Why can't we do that at 20? <laughs> we, we, we have a responsibility to navigate our own stages at 25. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, that we practice to become. Whether you meant to or not, you practice to become this person. Um, and there's a reflection of wisdom in that, and there's a reflection of self-discipline and various other um, fruits of the spirit that come into play that enabled you to be the person that is contented and happy and joyful and wise rather than bitter and cynical and crotchety. Yeah. I'd say one other thing, you're talking about prayer. Mm -hmm. And people do that differently. Mm -hmm. To 
in my stage, I find sometimes my best prayer is out on the boat fishing. Yeah. Like just relax and yep. talk to God. He can talk to me. I, I, I don't have to do all the no. talking. Right. So. Absolutely right. The healthy kids. I don't care about the healthy Solitude. Any other thoughts, questions? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> you did. You did. No. Thank you for your time this evening, and let me know if you have any questions. So, thanks much.